The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to Panoptic Podcast. I'm Jason, a consultant focusing on change management and communications. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host. Hi everyone, I'm Juan Pablo, and I'm uh, your co-host here, Jason. I'm a PhD candidate at the program in Modern Thought and Literature at Stanford University. And Jason, what are we talking about today? Awesome, yeah. So about a year ago, one of my favorite podcasts, Very Bad Wizards, entertained a short conversation about Google hiring a philosopher. And if you haven't heard of Very Bad Wizards, it's a podcast featuring conversations between a psychologist and a philosopher, mostly critiquing research papers, but sometimes discussing literature and pop culture as well. And they are absolutely great and personally uh, inspired me to launch this podcast with Juan Pablo. I, we, we have kind of like a similar format, don't we? But we generally cover very different topics. Uh, I don't remember the title of the episode of interest, but if anyone really wants to know, ping us on Twitter or email us and we can find out for you. So Juan, I, I thought it would be fascinating to follow up on this and do a deep dive into the world of philosophers in firms. And simply uttering that, you know, philosophers and firms, feels kind of weird, doesn't it? A humanities PhD is is a one-way ticket to academia, isn't it? Is it not? Is that an accurate perception, Juan? In the in the old perspective of academia, right, that's what it was supposed to be, right? Uh, a PhD in humanities meant you were going to be a professor, but now there's no jobs. So, but that, but as you as you say, though, suddenly firms at least seem to be interested in working with philosophers. That's, and that's, and maybe that's the question we're trying to explore today, right? Yeah. So, you know, it does seem to be a pervasive perception. Um, but definitely there are some firms that are hiring or working with philosophers for a number of reasons. So it'll be interesting to explore this and figure out what is the business case for working with a philosopher, or are there other reasons beyond the business case that justify uh, humanities PhDs going out and exploring kind of more creative uh, types of jobs? So my thinking, Juan, is let's discuss some of the base labor statistics, some of the ways in which firms can benefit from knowledge of the humanities, and we'll give an example of one philosopher in a firm, so to speak, understanding what this person does and how the work uh, how the work relates back to the logic of the firm. Uh, and another question: uh, at, at what point does a philosopher in a firm cease to be truly a philosopher? Where do we draw the line, particularly from the lens of a critical theorist? And as an individual in a firm myself, who I, who works with and applies social theory, I'll give you uh, my concern and perspectives as well. Sounds good. 
cool. And before we get started, just wanted to give a, a quick shout out to this guy, Ken Vallant, who's the host of the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. And he stumbled upon the Panoptic podcast and enjoyed it enough to very generously give us a plug on social media. I've listened to several epi- episodes of Something Rather Than Nothing, and Ken applies his background in philosophy to conduct some very enjoyable, open-ended interviews with artists of many stripes, poets, painters, musicians, dancers. Uh, definitely go check out Ken's podcast, which is available on all the pod players, and thank you, Ken, for the generous plug. And these nice gestures signal to potential listeners that Jason and I aren't just messing around, and maybe our content is worth listening to. That's great, because that means you're helping us to reach more people. You're supporting the show through word of mouth, reviews, shares, likes, tweets, and all those social media things. And those are absolutely essential for the growth of this podcast. As we continue to grow, we look forward to attracting more uh, guests collaborating with other podcasts and even doing some events but we don't we won't get there without uh, your help so thank you to everyone who is currently bringing new new listeners to the mix Uh, if you're not it only takes a few minutes to post a review so please consider supporting us this way and lastly if you're getting value out of this content and if you'd like to support us in a more substantive way please check out our Patreon. It's very easy to sign up and give us a one-time donation or series of donations. New patrons will get personalized shout-outs from Jason and I and first dibs on questions and answers as that we'll start doing in the show. If you want to ask us questions or submit topic ideas, you can reach us through the chat box on our website or just tweet at us at, at panopticpot. And here's something fun we could do, Juan. Many of us encounter similar life challenges, like a micromanaging boss or teammates who take credit for your work or situations where we find ourselves in an unlevel playing field. Uh, This is basically the stuff that Juan Juan and I talk about and argue about all the time, just maybe at at a different level. So we're inviting you to share any experiences that you're comfortable sharing Uh, with us in our community, and we'll do what we do, give you the theoretical and practical perspectives on the matter. Yep. So We promise to try to do that. We're not saying we're going to give you good advice, but at least it will be (laughs) We'll give you a range of theoretical options. No easy answers. (laughs) And that gets us to talking about philosophers in firms and what quote-unquote value they bring to the firm. Jason. And I bet that's even to ask what value does a philosopher bring to a firm. already comes with a whole slew of problems. Problems, right. Because right. <laughs> it also, well, we'll talk about value and all its meanings, right? Mm-hmm. Value is money, value is ethics. But, Jason, where are the philosophers working nowadays? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. So I went through some of the case labor <laughs> statistics. What was that? If they're working. If they're working. If Well, not too many people are working right now. Yeah, we, that's true. I'm not sure when this episode will post, but we are still, it's March 29th, so right. everything's still shut down. I'm not sick yet, though. I, I've been, knock on wood, not sick yet. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, right, this is being taped in the middle of the lockdown epidemic covid-19 
I hope everyone is staying healthy and hopefully the stuff we're putting out makes you a little less bored and able to cope with the uh, quarantine. Or maybe you're so bored that there's just nothing left and <laughs> you realize that it's not so bad to listen to our podcast after all. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, <laughs> we're happy to have you listening. So, Definitely. so Jason, when we get back to work, where will, will the philosophers that have a job be working or where, what are they doing? It's a good question. So the first place I looked was the National Science Foundation 2015 National Survey of, of College Graduates. They went through the Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics and, and combed through all that data and came up with an analysis of where humanities PhDs were working. So in 2018, roughly 55% of employed humanities PhDs worked in post-secondary teaching as compared to 30% of the total workforce. That's kind of a significant observation. Mm -hmm. uh, roughly 2% of employed humanities PhDs worked in business and financial operations as compared to 3% of the total workforce. Yeah. Roughly 14% of humanities PhDs and the total workforce worked in management. So it's kind of an insignificant uh, observation, although a significant proportion of humanities PhDs uh, is working in management occupations. And that can include computer and mathematical occupations, architecture and engineering occupations, and business and financial operations occupations. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Past employment status statistics. So this comes from the American Philosophical Association in 1993, so it's a little bit outdated. Yeah. But 81.5% of uh, humanities PhDs were employed full-time. 77.1% of them worked in an educational institution. Uh, by comparing to the humanities indicators data, the number of humanities PhDs in education sharply declined over the last few decades. So that was a little bit interesting. Yeah, probably because there aren't many jobs. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although there are, just telling you from the perspective of the humanities PhD, there's not only aren't there many jobs out there, but there are less and less jobs every year. And there are even a lot of universities that are folding philosophy departments. But I wonder if that's because they're shifting into different areas. So that's what we'll look at. According to the same study, 8.2% of these individuals worked for a private institution. So by comparing to the humanities indicators from earlier, the numbers of humanities PhDs in private institutions has probably increased. Hmm. So I wonder where they're going. Yeah. Between 2017 and 2019, 70% of humanities PhDs in education worked as adjunct faculty. Yeah, that's not very surprising. Some make the comparison to indentured servants with limited upward career mobility. Juan, maybe you can help give some uh, anecdotal, personal anecdotal uh, perspective on this. But the large number of PhD grads willing to work as adjunct teachers means that universities can run their undergraduate programs with huge cost savings. So professors are essentially paid a stipend, yet many don't want to leave the university. So some articles point to a possible stigma that PhDs feel um, preventing them from networking in non-academic fields. So Juan, do you feel this way or do you well, have any friends in, in, in the academic world who yeah. feel that way? Well, as you know, Jason, I worked outside of... Uh for a long time outside of any academic setting before uh, starting That's a PhD. Right. So I have experience outside of that world and don't feel at all sort of uh, 
scared by going in that direction if I needed to in terms of applying for jobs or things like that. But I think a lot of people uh, who have studied in the humanities and have gone on to a PhD and that has been their main focus, focus as you said, that, that's been a, a training ground for going into academic jobs. And so I think a lot of those people don't have... In, not only were they trained for this specific work, but now that there isn't much of that work available, uh, there's clearly a disjunction between how many of those people are being trained, the, the amount of jobs that are being that are being pr- produced and created, uh, given the the emphasis that the universities place on the humanities, um, and also the demand that uh, that is being for whatever reason exists for uh different humanities programs so Hmm. so uh i mean it's a long conversation but there are definitely people out there that have been trained for this and they have no they feel like they have nowhere else to go but into the adjunct market which is a very which is almost it's not a very great place to be right because it means you're getting paid twenty five hundred three thousand maybe four thousand dollars per course per semester and if you're adjuncting that means three four courses per semester and teaching in the summers and you're still making very very little money with no of a benefit so so uh, but those people don't I, f- I feel like they don't think that they're what they've been trained to do the skills that they have the skill set that they have somehow applies outside of a research and teaching setting uh, now I think that's our conversation today shows that there is a fit for that. The question then becomes for the person willing to do that is what are the, what does that look like and what are the problems with it, right? What kind of uh, limits are there to the kind of work I want to do as a humanities right. or a PhD in whatever humanities field? And maybe it takes a little bit of creative thinking to kind of put yourself out there into different uh, networks of individuals uh, yeah. outside the academic sphere. Kind of like what we do try to do on this podcast is take more high-level, heady concepts and make them practical. And that's not always so easy to do. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of value to be added uh, value in the, <laughs> in the business sense. <laughs> and that's, that's uh, part of the problem, which I think we'll right. discuss a little more. But a lot of there's a difference in terms of public and private values, right? And I think this, it's always hard to see how these will translate. People who have trained in humanities feel like they're providing a public good, which is sort of uh, research and teaching knowledge and knowledge production and knowledge, uh, passing on knowledge to students and ways of thinking. And these aren't thought of as things that you can make money off. Uh, And a lot of people don't want to go into private settings to sort of work within the firm logic well i mean and i think a big question for us today is can someone work in that and somehow uh be true to the philosophical calling whatever that may be right okay well let's get into it why might some specific types of firms hire philosophers that's a good question jason i you know, let's begin with what constitutes philosophy, right? Why don't we define that word or what that practice and what it might be? And that seems like a big question, but we could boil it down to a couple of things. Um, 
you know, we can't go into an in-depth discussion of what philosophy is. It's such a long, old field. Uh, but going over some definitions of what people think of when they think of philosophy can help us, I think, in um, the way that they can... Basically, what do philosophers do? That will give us a sense of what, why they might be, their skills might be interesting for firms. Now, traditionally, of course, the traditional notion of philosophy, Jason, as you well know, is philosophy is metaphysics. Um, and that's, this goes back to at least Plato in the Western tradition, right? Uh, that philosophy aims to describe the ultimate nature of the cosmos. So this is philosophy as sort of trying to decipher the transcendental conditions of being um, or what we call philosophy as an ontology. You know, what is the cosmos like? That's, that's sort of Plato, Plato-style philosophy, let's call it that. But since, at least since Kant, Immanuel Kant, this understanding of philosophy has been, become very problematic. Because Kant proposes that we distinguish between what we can know as sort of finite subjects and and what we can make statements about uh, and what we can't. And so with Kant, we begin to see philosophy changing the kind of questions it asks. It asks things like, what can we know about the world and things like that. And this is philosophy as knowledge, as epistemology, that fancy word for the conditions of what we can know and things like that. Uh, with Kant, there's still this trace of idealism with this notion that we are all kind of, our minds are all transcendental minds and they have these, these structures that are the same across time and space and we can, and we can be reason and they have these rational capacities basically. But, the split between the world, the object world, and the subject that create that Kant creates, uh, you know, the separation between knowledge and the world. Uh, we can't go into detail into this very complex topic, but this presents a sort of crisis for metaphysics, uh, and so philosophy, since Kant responds to this crisis, seeks to overcome it, the split between body and mind, or between objects and mind, even between body and mind, and sometimes critiques and seeks to overcome metaphysics altogether. And this leads us, leads us and a lot of philosophers wouldn't agree with this necessarily, but this leads us to a sort of post-metaphysical moment of philosophy. And this is, for instance, Habermas, Jürgen Habermas's perspective that philosophy is no no longer some kind of all-synthetic system, all-encompassing system that can, like, tell us, uh, make statements about reality. It's it, All it can really aspire to be is, is provide a sort of reconstructive appropriation of scientific knowledge. So take, look around itself, look at the different scientific discourses and in a way translate between them and clarify concepts and things and, and sort of put them into contact and give us a sort of meta level um, framework for th- for thinking about our situation and this might seem like a very unsatisfying definition of philosophy t- for a lot of people who want to answer questions like why are why are we here why you know all these sort of existential questions um, and we could argue about whether this is a 
tenable definition of philosophy. But it also reflects why philosophers might be today coveted as people who have a unique skill set that others do not. Uh, because if we think of philosophy this way, Jason, it becomes less an attempt to think about eternal truths or metaphysical conditions and more of a method oriented to translating between different frameworks, between different models, uh, putting them into contact, clarifying concepts, creating coherent models of knowledge at a meta level, as we discussed, and therefore allowing us in some ways perhaps to accelerate self-reflection and advancement in different paradigms of looking at the world or acting in the world. And this is all very abstract, but if you think about something like AI, right, Jason, this attempt by firms to do something like AI to artificial intelligence, you not only need computer scientists, you need um, perhaps linguists, people who are able to think about the way the humans, uh, natural intelligence, intelligences like humans create something like uh, semantic meanings through language. Um, how is that this, how is it that this comes about? How is it that it happens in an evolutionary sense? How can that, that help us build something like a artificial intelligence through things like algorithms? So you see how thinking in a radically interdisciplinary way makes philosophy perhaps a privileged field that uh, can do something that no other scientific framework that is very much locked in into its, into its methods and its notations and its concepts can do. And this is really important also in the context of difficult questions that arise with something like artificial intelligence and digital technologies and the internet, uh, particularly if we're talking about things like ethical problems that arise, moral problems. And this is where it seems, Jason, to me, from our research, that a lot of the intersection of firms and philosophy comes in, this intersection of how, how firms start to think, oh, well, we have all this power. How do we wield it ethically? Whether at the end of the day they're being sincere about whether they actually want to be, how far they're willing to go in terms of being ethical. As you were talking, it made me think of these Twitter bots that were released on the internet several mm -hmm. years ago. I don't know exactly how they operated, but they became incredibly racist because they were <laughs> copying the... Terrible the horrible things that people say on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, and that is an interesting example of how whatever it is, whatever concepts that it was supposed to lock into, whatever way of perceiving was locked into that AI's sort of framework, focused it to focus or forced it to focus on these sort of negative or racist elements right rather than something else i guess that's a wider issue with the management of information on the web in general especially when we have tech firms that are largely in a position to make those decisions mm -hmm. which information gets to be on the web or not and if we have citizens requesting that certain personal data be removed does google have responsibility to remove it for the sake right. of privacy or does the public have a right to that information and i guess that's probably something we're going to get into in a yeah. little bit but before we get there i thought maybe we could go through an example i mean let, let, let's start with google 
and yeah. think about corporate ethics and then see how that ties back to our conversation on the uh, ethics of technology. So, I mean, you know, Google is a good place to start. So yeah. Google you, used to have a mantra, don't be evil. And a few years ago, the mantra was updated to do the right thing. So I wanted <laughs> to understand what what might it mean to not be evil or to do the right thing from the perspective of the Google Corporation. And if we look at Google's code of conduct, the meaning of these mantras is distilled into five distinct principles. And that's providing our users unbiased access to information, focusing on their needs and giving them the best products and services that we can, following the law, acting honorably, and treating coworkers with courtesy and respect. Okay, so maybe this isn't all that different from other corporate ethics statements. Well, I don't know if you have an immediate reaction to this. Well, I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. The From the do the right thing as a sort of mantra, which um, doesn't tell you much. It doesn't add much to a sort of folk, everyday folk ethics of, of course, people go around the world thinking do the right thing. The question is, what is the right thing to do? And how do you do it, right? So that... It doesn't give you any method or answer any questions. It just it just sort of comes off as a platitude. But if we talk about these five distinct principles, the one that stands out to me, perhaps, Jason, is because the first one is very much is very much the meat of it, right? Providing our users unbiased access to information. We'll talk about the problems that come up when Google becomes such a powerful purveyor of, and controller of information. Uh, but acting honorably is a strange one. Absolutely. It's a very strange, strange one because it, it brings up questions of what honor and values are and how a firm could have any of that uh, or what that means in the firm context for an individual. And honor cultures haven't always worked out, at least not from a Western lens, right? That can mean a lot of different well, things. Uh, Tamler Summers wrote a book on this. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a. I was reading an article not too long ago about about shame, as the way it works in more quote unquote traditional cultures. Uh, shame is something that is central to the way it organizes uh, 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 relationships, and honor, right? Or we could go. We could think about um, to sort of throw out an example that's very abstract, but a little more concrete is sort of feudal relations, the feudal times as sort of characterized by, we talked about this in a recent episode, by not only the allegiances between feudal lords, uh, basically warlords, and in, on the one hand, sort of horizontal and a little and vertical, but also uh, depending on the relationship between the, of dependency between and, and control between uh, peasants and, and lords, but particularly the re- the relationship between the feudal lords. Think about how how many if you've ever watched a movie about anything to do with with feudal times, or 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 if you've seen if you've ever watched a Shakespeare play, it's all about political problems of secession. You know, somebody steps out of line and kills a king, and they don't, and you know, the things fall apart. There's civil war. Uh, uh, 
allegiance and passing on power from one generation to another becomes a very big problem when it's based on personal relations, right? On honor. It's not... Uh, Honor already implies a sort of kind of community set of allegiances that uh, perhaps uh, bring up questions of what is the right thing to do. Is it okay to revenge your father if your father has been murdered? This is, for instance, if you've ever seen Hamlet, this is a big question of the play. Is Hamlet okay to revenge his father uh, who has been murdered by his, by his uncle? Is it okay for him to do that? Or is it or should he, or is he accountable to his own actions as a moral individual beyond the clan allegiances that he has, right? So this becomes a big question, a big problem. So acting honorably is really strange <laughs> from the context of a like modern It seems like it would lend firm. itself to more of a vert, uh, some kind of virtue ethic, right? And meanwhile, mm -hmm. you know, most of us in the West at least are more accustomed to kind of to an ethic where we care more about actions than personal character. Yeah. And that's reflected in our legal system as yeah, well. Right. So kind of like an honor system is, is somewhat antithetical to what we might expect our Western firms to be reflecting in their corporate ethics statements. Yeah. And as you just said, it, it kind of, it clashes with this liberal democratic perspective in which we're supposed to regulate our, our actions via laws. And the law is not about being honorable or dishonorable. It's about following a specific or, or limiting giving shape to what are the legitimate actions regardless of how people feel about it uh, yeah. supposedly with with the intention of maximizing everybody's freedom but you know so that's a really weird one acting honorably and what is that supposed to tell its workers uh, also in the context and we've talked about this so often all over and over again but just, just a sort of side comment before we move on uh, the realm of, of private, the private realm under capitalism is a realm of strategic action. So what does it mean to be honorable in that? Does it just mean like fulfill your contracts or does it mean something else, right? Um, and what does it mean for individuals working in a, a firm? A lot of questions that are very problematic. Maybe that's why we need philosophers in firms. Yeah, and it turns out Google does have... Well, has worked with with at least two philosophers that we've been able to identify. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get into that, yeah. but it's worth noting that most firms have stated some mishmash of values to complement their <laughs> mission and vision statements. Yeah, and even British Petroleum, Lehman Brothers, and Blackwater Ouch. have corporate ethics statements. Oh. So, for for example, Blackwater said, "Our exceptional employees adhere to an essential system of core <laughs> corporate values. Chief among them are integrity." innovation excellence respect accountability and teamwork and interestingly <laughs> they don't mention honor honor you know blackwater is probably one of those places where an honor value would would work better but yeah i mean i wouldn't so much expect it from a google but that probably also gets back to um, i'm sure they have a corporate ethics officer who has some documentation that tries at least attempts to explain what these values mean hmm. the problem is you you can get kind of um um atomistic with this because they already have their mantra don't be evil do the right thing you break it out into five principles but there's still all these philosophical questions about well, what do these principles mean yeah and you're going to keep going deeper and deeper and it's not really in the interest of the corporation to be thinking too hard about this yeah or or is it yeah i mean accountability was one of the, the values with Blackwater. Um, since when has Blackwater been accountable? Right. I don't think 
Yeah. That's something they lived up to. So it, it's something we know that many companies don't often live up to their stated ethics. So why, why should we have them in the first place? In theory, these ethics statements can function like a filter setting basic expectations among employee and consumer stakeholders. For example, this is what we promise to do and why we are different from our competitors. So if the firm strays from these basic expectations, hypothetically, the stakeholders will hold the firm to account. So it's no secret, often firms fall short, um, yet they are allowed to continue business as usual um, until they really, really screw up, like with Blackwater. But mm -hmm. even then, components of, of that company were allowed to continue in new forms. Yeah, they just changed their name. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Probably updated their ethics statement and moved on, right? Yeah. I th they were called Academy, and then they were acquired by Constellus recently. So mm. Generally speaking, holding all else constant i think there is a compelling business case here juan for not being evil or for trying to do the right thing if you keep reading uh, google's code of contact ties the firm's mantra back to the profit objectives of google and this is something that many other companies fail to do with their ethics statements uh, google's code makes a promise to consumers everything we do in connection with our work at google will be and should be measured against the highest possible standard of ethical business conduct and then it goes on to say, our commitment to the highest standards helps us hire great people, build great products, and attract loyal users. Trust and mutual respect among employees and users are the foundation of our success, and they're something we need to earn every day. And this really stood out to me because Google is making the case that if the firm cannot be good for goodness sake, then it ought to be good for the sake of maintaining or growing the customer base and attracting the best, most productive talent with the highest investment return. Indeed, there, there's research to suggest that many employees, especially millennial employees, are attracted to firms with reputations for more ethical cultures. So in a sense, Google is signaling to the stakeholders, hey, we're going to do the right thing by you because our business depends on it. So what does Google do? The firm's mission statement is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And if I had to characterize Google's business model, I'd broadly characterize it as the monetization of data, mostly through advertising. So we're talking about not being evil or doing the right thing, which begs the question, what data should Google be allowed to collect and monetize and at what cost? Mm -hmm. And does Google's ethical mantra provide any insight into how the firm morally calculates business decisions? And we, we talked a little bit about this, but I don't think it provides much insight maybe follow the law is clear <laughs> right but that's kind of seems like a low bar right well i there's a, you bring up a lot of questions uh the main one has to do with it being a steward of information and what it means to balance being a steward of information with making money the secondary one means what does it mean to be uh well follow the law is is pretty clear but what does it mean to be ethical and honorable in that context? Does it mean going beyond the law, let's say, to take care of your employees? Or does it mean following the law and simply giving, writing a nice letter when they get fired because of downsizing, because you're trying to make an extra, you know, buck for your, for your shareholders? Uh, or, right, it, uh, that's, that's a simplistic critique, but it's also a critique that brings up what are the interests of the firm and how do they 
how can they clash or how do they clash with a traditional notion of ethics when the when there's this balance or this junction between the interest of making money and being ethical uh we we'll go back to it in a minute jason but we can obviously talk about this in more concrete notions in terms of particularly the way that google is a steward for information it I think it becomes harder if we go beyond that to talk about what it would mean to be an ethical firm. If you hear about what a Google workplace looks like, and I haven't been in one, but mm-hmm. as an employee of Google, you're going to get a lot of nice perks. Of course, they expect you to be in the office. Well, maybe not every, I mean, with, I'm sure there are a lot of technologists who are allowed to telework. I don't know exactly what the corporate culture yeah. is on that, but I do know the Google offices are pretty, you know, they come with quite a bit of perks. So you could think about that in terms of going above and beyond what is expected for standard employees. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that is a statement of going above and beyond what is ethical or what is legal, I should say. And another, another one of their principles, delivering a high quality product. Um, Most firms, except for maybe like spirit airlines say they're going to do this. It's actually, I mean, there, there, there are certain firms that their whole business model is predicated on signaling to their consumers that this is the low quality, low cost product and people are okay with that. I mean, that's how they, right. United was like that for a while as well. Uh-huh. It would actually be against their business interests to have a more high quality, high, co- high cost product because the way they differentiated themselves was based on the low quality, low cost yeah. offering yeah. google is essentially saying we have a high quality product so that is saying something about the kinds of consumers they they hope to um, bring into the mix yeah so yeah but i agree with you providing users unbiased access to information is probably the most interesting from a technology standpoint because this really ties into a lot of the technology ethics conversations that are happening around the globe today and some of the concerns that we've talked about in depth on this podcast as well yeah i mean uh, does it does it tell us much about google's data privacy moral calculus maybe not uh it may suggest that google wants us to believe their platforms shall not be censored and we could do a whole series just on this whether whether or not information has been censored or if it should be censored no anyway so in conclusion i think google's ethics statement in itself doesn't really tell us much about the firm's particular moral bias or calculus, but maybe Google's so-called in-house philosopher can provide some clarity. So there's this guy, Damon Horowitz, and Juan, when, when you and I were first researching the topic, he's the first individual who came up, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, we did, uh, we did a little research on him. Um, turned out to be that he wasn't really... A philosopher for Google. Uh, he ever, however, he has been trained as a philosopher, and I read a little bit of his dissertation, which is very much in the analytical tradition and has to do with questions of how to ground semantic meaning. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I'm not gonna. I I'm not prepared to go into in, in detail, but well, let's, uh, let's talk about him a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about and him and then... what he does for. For did for for Google in a, any philosophical context. Yeah. I, I pulled some of his biography for a conversation. And so he earned his philosophy and PhD from Stanford. 
and he got his MS in AI from MIT Media Labs. Mm -hmm. And he works as a philosophy professor and a serial entrepreneur and sits on the board of multiple nonprofits and humanities, humanities projects. And he also worked for Google after the firm acquired one of Horowitz startups. And his position, I mean, if you Google his name, you'll find his job title, in-house philosopher. <laughs> so what, what could that possibly mean? Uh, what was Google doing hiring a philosopher? And did it have anything to do with seriously morally grounding Google's business model? Yeah. Like we've been talking about. So it turns out that Horowitz's job title wasn't simply philosopher, but based on what I could find, Horowitz's primary job title was director of engineering. No. According to Crunchbase, as director of engineering, Horowitz headed development of personalization and privacy initiatives. Mm. And markedly prior to Google, he built companies based on automated language processing, including a company called um, Aardvark, which was acquired by Google. No. Perspecta, which was acquired by Excite. Novation Biosciences, acquired by Agilent. And NewsDB, which is now called Daylife. So a lot of his companies, a lot of the companies he made were sold off. Yeah. So that's kind of... It sounds like he would create them and sell them. Yeah. Once the concept was sort of on the ground. Maybe yeah. be, maybe being a philosopher is more profitable than we think. <laughs> if you if you have some AI training. Yeah. I think a lot of what he was doing can be tied back to the humanities. And I imagine a lot of what he was doing was personally motivated by his philosophical interests. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we can say he was actively performing philosophy. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just suggesting that... Horowitz's brand, in-house philosopher, might have more to do with Google's marketing strategy than yeah. any real attempt to morally ground the Google business model. No. In 2011, he presented what kind of became a famous TED Talk called We Need a Moral Operating System. Yeah. And he, and he starts this TED Talk by asking the audience which phone they preferred, Apple or Android. And then he asked the crowd if we, we being software developers, should collect data on end users for the purpose of generally making the user experience better to in turn make more money for software developers, or should we respect the privacy of end users and leave them alone? Yeah. All right, so if we think back to Google's code of conduct, there's no mention of data privacy or permissible uses of customer data. Right. Uh, but interestingly, we now have the so-called in-house philosopher of Google speaking to this matter publicly. Anyway, if you, you can go and watch the TED Talk if you want. By the end, Horowitz hasn't really answered the question. Instead, he says that software developers, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, can't simply be in the business of developing software, but they also need to be in the business of thinking about the moral implications of what they build. Yeah. All right. So not really a very helpful answer. But <laughs> right. Do the right I'm they not need to do the right thing. <laughs> Right. They, they just can't be making money. They need to be doing the right thing. Well, hey, at least he's posing the question, though, right? Yeah. As someone in, inside of the company. It's almost like he's he's kind of he's he's kind of doing exactly what the what Google's ethics statement already does. Yeah. And it's present kind of some vague statements that point to at least an attempt on part Google's business leaders to morally ground uh, the Google business model. But anyway, I'm not, I don't want to downplay the value of Horowitz's work. He's definitely a fascinating business entrepreneur who's identified cool ways of applying the humanities to technology for practical purposes. And that's something I aspire to do in my change management field every day. 
But Juan, how, how do you do you feel about characterizing Horowitz as a philosopher in the context of his role at Google? Well, I mean, it sounds to me from the, re- the little bit of research we did and the way you posed everything, Jason, that what he's doing is uh, presenting himself as someone who, or presenting philosophers as people who have something to offer the conversation for a firm like Google and and for uh, big tech, that we not only need to be that we not only need to be, as he says, in the business of of big tech, but also in the business of sort of doing it in a moral way. Uh, but beyond the TED Talk, beyond the sort of TED Talk posing of these questions and why there might be some important, there still seems to me like he's only scratching the surface of what this would mean for a firm that has these sort of weird set of interests that clash apparently might be clashing one being the steward of information um two being the steward of people's data uh and three being an firm that at the end of the day is interested in making money and 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 improving its bottom line and has to answer to shareholders or to its its uh corporate ownership so the question is whether these aren't ultimately, there are limits of how these can align. There's a question of, does Google have any kind of moral obligation to its customers to make the product design better for them? Yeah. So they are getting the value out of what they're paying for. And Which is a weird way to pose the question since Google mainly, it sells things, right? It does sell things, its phones and services of certain kinds. Uh, we use the services all the time. I use them a lot, right? Gmail and Drive and right. and Google and I, Sheets. I think and... it's, it's largely B two B, business to business through advertising. Yeah, right. So that that's I think where the vast majority of their revenue comes from advertisers. Right, and that brings up the question: who the, who their customer is? Is it the is it the public for whom it acts as a as a steward of information? In in many ways, it acts as a screen for information. It its algorithms determine what you see when you click when you when you search for something on Google, or is it its uh, advertisers? And uh, what is how does that influence its ethics and what it means to build this? This question of ethics becomes, I think, really problematic as we're seeing when we start picking it apart uh, between its the private interest of its uh, itself, but also of its customer base who might be advertisers and the public interest what is one way maybe to put this tension well i, I want to suggest that horowitz is more of a thought leader than a philosopher in the context of his role at google and what do i mean by thought leadership thought leadership is when you produce marketing content to be recognized as an expert and credible authority in your field to attract customers and generate revenue yeah so a 2020 study by edelman and linkedin they surveyed a 1,300 B2B professionals operating at the manager and executive levels. The, the study found that thought leadership attracts invitations to bid RFPs, requests for proposals, earns buyer preference by building trust, directly contributes to wins, and can even impact pricing. So there are six points here. Thought leadership earns attention. 90% of respondents said that thought leadership was important or very important, and spent upwards of an hour or more each week with such content. 
Two, thought leadership builds trust. So 81% of respondents said that thought leadership has increased their trust in a vendor organization. Three, thought leadership is a basis for evaluating businesses. 53% of respondents said that thought leadership is an important way to evaluate a vendor organization. Four, thought leadership is worth contact, info, and trade. So 44% of all respondents provide their originating org organization contact information in association with thought leadership content. Five, thought leadership helps close deals. So 45% of respondents said thought leadership has directly led them to award business to a company. And finally, six, thought leadership commands premium pricing. So 49% said that thought leadership helps companies command a premium for their products and services by demonstrating their kind of leading authority in the market. Hmm. So I think Google is doing some of this thought leadership with Horowitz particularly yeah. with respect to its B2B practice, selling advertising services to businesses. Do businesses really care about the content of Google's thought leadership? Maybe not, even if the content is academically sound or insightful. But Google's reputation for pioneering all things big tech drives the firm's competitive edge in an evolving, increasingly technology-oriented market. Google generates revenue off this reputation. So my analysis is that Horowitz, while he was doing some interesting things at Google, wasn't really there to counsel executives on the morality of data privacy. Rather, he was largely performing a marketing requirement. Which is really problematic from the perspective of philosophy, because if if it's just getting sucked up and becoming sort of this uh, marketing, a set of marketing terms, right, is, is there an ethics department that sits down with the people who are producing the algorithms and checks their work to make sure that all these different things are being met all these different requirements or standards are being met in terms of some kind of goals and what are the basis for these goals or is it just or is it just somebody who goes on a tech talk and says we at google are thinking about morals but then at the end of the day it's business as usual it becomes right this whole notion of thought leadership can be i think it has this perhaps problematic dimension which is what is it is it just a way of co-opting philosophical discourse of ethics and stuff like that and presenting it as a front hey we're an ethical company we have a philosopher in house we think morally about what we do and ethically and we are guided by these values but at the end of the day it's it's you know it's simple firm logics of cost cutting and maximizing efficiency and whatever so these these uh i think it's we have to keep asking this question jason as we move forward is can the logics of maximizing efficiency, maximize expanding profits, uh, and mar and market reach, uh, getting workers to be more uh, efficient in how they do things—all the different things that firms are that we that we could easily say these are the logics of firms and what makes them dynamic entities—are these Can these be somehow? Can these incorporate truly at the level of content, as you said? incorporate ethical frameworks can google sit down philosophers and ethicists with their computer scientists and, and produce algorithms that and models for accessing data and for for going through people's data and collating it and producing products for its for its uh customer base that are somehow truly grounded in some ethical uh framework i it's a it's a big question mark and it's an interesting it's an interesting question mark to to think about. Definitely. What what I what I would add there is that 
if the business case for having a deeper reflection on how do we morally ground our business practices, if that mm-hmm. if that is tied to, or or if the answer is well, market it's marketing, it's about retaining talent, uh, yeah. attracting good talent, it's about building better products for our customers. I think that is good uh, because I think it's good for firms to be having those types of conversations, yeah. even if the primary reason they're having those conversations is to build a stronger brand yeah. or to mm-hmm. further the business in some way. But the the question, as you posed it, is are those reflections meaningful and are there, are, are they contributing to something valuable from a, from a public perspective, from yeah. a public right. thought perspective and that, um, without any kind of formal peer review in the business space. It's maybe sometimes a wider conversation about the content of thought leadership. Yeah, it's hard it's hard to say yeah. when when it's meaningful and when it isn't. And nonetheless, as you've as you've brought up and I think as we as we brought up, uh there are some ways in which firms might see philosophers or humanities humanities PhDs as people who bring the skill set that is useful in the sense of um in the sense of the way they can help think strategically by this kind of multilinguistic way of thinking, interdisciplinary thinking in terms of network systems and flows. This is something that humanities PhDs are trained in. Uh, logical ways of thinking, method, method uh, data science, this is something they're looking for. People who think about the way paradigms change in different fields, uh, human, this is what humanities people are being trained in. And maybe even as you have uh, brought up, Jason, training, things like training and the ethics of, of how to retain the right, uh, how to retain the right uh, empl- employee, the set of type of employees and how to, how to, and how to construct uh, relations between those employees, how to create a sort of ethical milieu for them to interact, right? Yeah. Well, even from a training standpoint, there are a lot of like large management consultancies that get audited by the government, by the SEC, to make sure there aren't conflicts of interest occurring or like lobbying and things like that. That's all highly regulated. So those employees who work for those kinds of institutions are required to go through very rigorous ethical um, or corporate ethics training, mm-hmm. and government ethics training. So I wonder if bringing in a professional moral philosophers or academics to make those trainings more robust can actually provide a kind of value, a different kind of value to those employees to understand, um, yes, we're following regulation here, and this is something the company has to do to sustain itself in the current regulatory environment. But what is the, why should I personally have a moral, feel more morally obligated to performing these duties? And maybe, maybe there's a benefit there to bringing in someone who can actually speak to those issues, um, tying the regulatory framework back to our personal morality. Yeah. And as you said, from a, a in kind of the strategy consulting world, consultants are thinking in terms of networks, systems, and flows. They have to go into an organization and figure out how. Um, well, if you're doing management consulting or change management, those kinds of things, you have to figure out how do all these processes align to the organizational hierarchy 
And then how does that map to the value proposition of the organization or the mission of the government agency? And how do you tie all these things together? And being able to think in systems and flows and, and map them and explain them in, uh, in a clear, articulate way. Yeah. Uh, and, and then ground them in some kind of framework to show, hey, this is like how you are structured today. But if we restructure this way based on this information or these theories, we can we can achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve right now. And I think uh, who better than than individuals from the humanities field to uh, think in flows and networks and mm -hmm. systems to help help organizations accomplish that kind of analysis. Yeah. What about philosophers? actually doing philosophy in the firm context I'm wondering if, if that actually exists so are, are there any examples of philosophers doing philosophy in the firm context and we can stick with our google example because google definitely has a history of engaging probably a little bit more with yeah. the humanities in june 2018 google announced an ethical charter to guide the responsible development and use of ai in the firm's research and products and Here's a quote from the press release. Uh, to complement the internal government structure and processes that help us implement the principles we've established in Advanced Technology External Advisory Council, this group will consider some of Google's most complex challenges that arise under our AI principles like facial recognition and fairness and machine learning, providing diverse perspectives to inform our work. Okay. So the committee included economists, psychologists, technologists, and philosophers, namely Luciano Floridi. Am I saying that correctly? Juan? I think so. Floridi. I mean, that's how I would say the name. So we should note that this committee failed to last more than one week. <laughs> it was promptly canceled after thousands of stakeholders learned and became outraged that one of the committee members also worked with the far-right think tank Heritage Foundation. There may be other issues with this committee as well. Uh, according to a Vox article, a role on Google's AI board was an unpaid, toothless position that cannot possibly, in four meetings over the course of a year, arrive at a clear understanding of everything Google is doing, let alone offer nuanced guidance on it. There are urgent ethical questions about the AI work Google is doing and no real avenue by which the board could address them satisfactorily. Mm -hmm. From the start, it was badly designed for the goal. Yeah. Okay, so it seems like there are a lot of issues with this committee. But, but Juan, I, I love the idea of tech firms like Google building committees of academics and thinkers to advise and guide business practices. So I wonder if there's a business case for this type of investment that goes beyond the marketing or, or generic thought leadership. Unlike Horwitz, Luciano Floridi seems to be a fairly serious philosopher and while he also gives flashy TED Talks, he sort of pioneered an entire <laughs> branch of philosophy, right? Yeah, he is definitely a serious philosopher. Uh, you know, I, And his, his work stretches back long before this failed committee, yeah, right? So He has been working for, for Google, with Google in, in some way, capacities before this. Uh, I'm, I have to say I'm somewhat skeptical about the current firm models particularly in the u.s being able to incorporate something like this ai board but that's uh, i think a topic for an, for a longer conversation however i think this is an interesting example in which google has actually with florida engaged a truly rigorous philosopher uh i took the time to read one of his books uh, a very 
interesting, complex read uh, the, where he lays out the, his philosophy of information. It's pretty, the title of the book is The Philosophy of Information. I think the book is from 2014. Uh, he is an Oxford-trained philosopher. Uh, he's a professor of philosophy and ethics of information at the University of Oxford, where he directs uh, the Digital Ethics Lab, so at the Oxford Internet Institute. So he clearly has the credentials and the kind of credentials you'd expect if philosophy, if Google was taking philosophy seriously. Uh, that's the kind of person they would engage. He is trained in metaphysics, epistemology, and logic, and reading his book, you see that he has a pretty solid grounding in sort of traditional philosophy, analytical philosophy, and also has a very broad and, and also well-developed interest in computer and artificial intelligence, ethics, and, and philosophy-related topics to, that have to do with compute, computer and, and computer science. And his research actually does focus for a long time now on, quote, this is from his website on it at Oxford, information and computer ethics, aka digital ethics, the philosophy of information, and the philosophy of technology, and quote, with philosophy of information being sort of the main, being his paradigm that he's sort of trying to develop as a, as a philosophical perspective. And as you mentioned, Jason, he's been working with Google for a while now, in fact, He's been involved with them since at least 2014, or around that time. Uh, this all goes back to uh, an important court case that our our listeners might have heard about or not, but truly an important court case that I'm sure is going to be one that sets uh, probably a standard for a lot of things, a lot of these questions that are coming out about uh, digital ethics. But... This is a case that has to do with a Spanish citizen uh, who brought a case saying that they wanted some information removed from searches, from internet searches, because it was no longer ac- because it was no longer relevant um, information. It had to do with some some um, some financial issues that had been resolved, and it was no longer relevant. And the, the citizen wanted that information out of the public sphere. So, in May 2014, the European Court of Justice uh, issued a ruling. Uh, brought by the citizen uh, as an, in an appeal stating that in some circumstances, Google, and specifically was targeted to the Google, had to remove links of personal information if it was, quote, inaccurate, inadequate, or no longer relevant, end quote. And the court put the onus on Google to determine uh, when this was the case. According to this regulation, what are called uh, basically Companies like Google uh, have to, when they are presented with a request to remove personal information, they have to, quote, carry out the erasure erasure without delay, end quote, unless the retention of information is deemed essential for the right of freedom of expression. And this relates to uh, digital firms' responsibility to assess on a case-by-case basis the legitimacy of the sharing of the personal information on online and to decide at which point delisting de- such information would be a case of undue censorship. And having to define the criteria for deciding uh, which requests to approve, Google basically decided to put together a panel of experts. This task force included this, this philosopher, uh, Luciano Floridi. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? 
is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.